Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Amped. Hey, Dave, how are you today? I'm great, Peggy. How are you? I am doing well. Doing well. The sun is shining again. Kids are out of control. Life is normal. Congratulations. Yes. Glad to hear it. <laughs> So we have a guest today, Peggy. We do. I'm excited. I'm, I'm very excited. This is kind of a ripped from the headlines sp- special podcast. Um, so I'm really, really excited to have Connell Doyle with us, who is an attorney. And um, we posted an article several months ago, about what, two months ago now, maybe? Probably. I sh- I yeah, at least that. Yeah, about uh, a class action lawsuit involving prosthetics, and we got a a lot of questions and a lot of confusion on social media and on our uh, Mighty Network about this issue. So, you know, Dave, kudos to you. You managed to track down the man himself, and he is on our podcast. So welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Um, so I, I think we're just going to dive right in if everybody's okay with that. Um, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us basically, you know, how you became involved with the limb loss, limb difference community and who you are? Oh, sure. So, uh, I'm a congenital above knee amputee. I have, uh, was born with PFFD, proximal focal uh, femoral deficiency. So I was born without my femur. And uh, had a foot, had my foot amputated when I was uh, two, and I'm 48 now. So I've, you know, for almost the last 50 years, I've been living without, you know, with a limb difference. And when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, I had the old kind of clunky prosthetic technology with just basically the wooden leg with a hinge and holes in it to get ventilation and um, I was lucky. I was a, a decent athlete and, you know, was really always getting into sports. And I, I, I just wish that I had some of the technology back then in the seven, 70s and 80s that's available now for, for all kinds of things. So, you know, th- this is obviously, um, you know, advocating for amputees, helping amputees, being a voice for amputees is something that's very personal to me. And I take a ton of pride in and passion, uh, you know, about. And um, I love prosthetists. They've been a big part of my life, my whole life. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was in the Shriners Hospital when I was a kid and the first time I met a prosthetist, I was just kind of lying in bed and I was uh, came out of a surgery and a prosthetist came up to me and he kind of had that like uh, that glue smell, you know, the back back in the day, those prosthetics, you know, those, those really strong glue smell. I could smell that and I would later call that, the you know, the fake leg uh, smell, tell my mom that. He came up to me and he said, you know, he introduced himself. I forgot his name now, but he said, you know, don't worry. I'm going to get you up in no time on legs and walking. And I remember how I felt so – I felt so, so, such gratitude because I just – the last thing in the world I ever wanted was my uh, my mom or my parents to kind of feel like they had to take care of me. I wanted to be independent. I, I, I didn't want anybody to feel like, uh, you know, that, that to worry about me. And, uh so I just think that the prosthetics is, is, is such it bridges the gap between you know being in a chair and and really living a lifestyle that uh, in, in many ways isn't too much different than able-bodied folks you know depending on the amputee um, and it certainly uh, I've, I've sort of decided to, to dedicate my life to um, really in the last ten years fighting for 
amputees to get insurance coverage and for, uh, you know, representing amputees and in personal injury claims, and um, whether it be a product defect or a car accident, truck accident, bike accident. I've been practicing law for about 22 years now um, and started out doing defense work representing insurance companies. So I got to see kind of the other side, how they, how they think, how they work. Uh, and then about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, switched, to, switched over to doing plaintiff's personal injury and insurance coverage work, similar to Dave, I think the stuff you used to do back in, back in the day, back in New York. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I didn't actually realize that we, we, that you and I shared that and that you also started working for the evil empire, but, um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, yeah. it's good. It's good to, it, you know, it's interesting how that experience, uh, often leads you to the other side. And, uh, l- let me, I want to go back though. You, um, you mentioned that you grew up with a limb difference and just talk to us a little bit about, you mentioned you were athletic, but, um, you know, what were your sort of key takeaways about growing up with limb difference? Was it something you were highly aware of and, and that other kids made you aware of, uh, were, were the people you hung out with accepting of it and integrating you into everything they did? Just if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. You know, I guess I got a little bit of the um, street fighter Irish in me. Um, and so when I grew up, I, you know, I had, again, I had one of those like wooden legs and yeah, you know, you get, you get teased a little bit. You get people that, that, that you know, say something from time to time. But I remember I grew up in Syracuse, New York um, from the age of like five to 15. And I remember getting in a fight when I was young and I just grabbed some kid and I, I, I shrug, shudder right now. I can't believe I did it, but I ended up grabbing his head and smashing it against my leg. It's lucky that the, you know, he didn't have a brain injury or something. But from that day on, uh, you know, I, nobody ever messed with me at school. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess when you're, you know, you're young, you kind of have some insecurities about, about it. And, I, and I, maybe I did a little bit myself. But I think probably by the time I hit high school, I started developing and, um, you know, was, played a lot. I played basketball. I played um, uh, football. I played baseball. I played volleyball. Um, and, um, you know, was as active as I could be with, um, you know, against able-bodied athletes. My real kind of passion for, for sport, I think is, is alpine skiing. I was, a uh, an alpine ski racer. So I was, a I started three tracking when I was, I don't know, six or seven. And for those that don't know what that is, it's just, you ski on one leg, um, take your prosthetic off ski on one ski with, um, two little poles with the outriggers on. And I, I bet most of our audience knows what that is, but I started, I was fortunate. I had a neighbor whose uncle ran a ski resort in upstate New York, was a general manager of the ski resort. So I got free seasons pass passes. I was on the race team and, you know, I remember racing Tuesday night, skiing Saturday, Sunday. And then I went on to do some, uh, uh, disabled race, um, racing about 15 years ago. Um, I moved from Florida to California where I am now. I'm, I'm in Beverly Hills, California now, but I moved to the Bay Area at the time and I did a season of um, ski racing against, you know, against the Paralympic team, the U.S. Paralympic team, the Canadian team and the Australian team. And I, I realized day that I didn't want to give up my day job. That <laughs> was a pretty strong, <laughs> I was a pretty strong skier, but I couldn't compete at the level of those, you know, those Paralympic athletes or incredible athletes, really just some, I think in my opinion, some of the best athletes in the world. And, you know, they were trained in year round, um, to, to do this work and they gave up careers. And I said, you know what, I'm going to stick with the law, but I'm really glad I did that. I kind of reconnected with, um, the disabled community at that point. And, uh, it was really actually my first experience. I was, shoot, I was like 33 years old to, to be doing, 
you know, competitive sports against other adaptive athletes. And I, I loved it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely prefer the skiing, the, um, skiing the fresh powder and stopping at the lodge, having a beer and the relaxing side of skiing as opposed to, <laughs> you know, freezing, uh, freezing my tail up on the, on the top of a mountain waiting for everybody else to be called because I wasn't ranked. You know, it's, it's a lonely, uh, ski racing can be a lonely thing. Sure. So Peggy, you have a question? I I wanted to know basically, you know, at what point did you know that you wanted to become a lawyer and did your did your limb difference have anything to, to you said that you originally worked for the insurance companies? Uh was that limb was that related to your limb difference or was that kind of outside of that? No, I think it I think it was related. I mean it's a great question. I, I, I grew up kind of being more thinking I might go into the medical field. And I think that's in part because of the limb difference. I had an interest in, in medicine. And when I got into college, <clears throat> I realized, and in high school as well, I mean, I realized I didn't love the biology, the chemistry as much as I did just public speaking, writing, you know, reading. Um, and I, at some point during college, I think my roommate was going to take a, take the LSAT and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. And I just decided to do it last minute. Did pretty well on it, and got on got on law school. And just sort of, when I got into law school, things clicked. And I happened to be lucky that I, two of my best friends in my first year of law school, their dads happened to be two of the top top plaintiff personal injury lawyers in in uh, Florida. And so, you know, I decided at that point, look, I'm gonna I want to do personal injury law because. I mean, obviously, I have a, a personal story to tell and a connection and an empathy with my clients that, you know, able-bodied uh, lawyers just, just don't have. And when I talk to the juries about pain and lack of mobility, I, I just have a, an innate credibility that is just really difficult to, to emulate and to replace. And so, um, you know, I think that certainly it played a big role um, in, in kind of pushing me in that direction. And when I got out of law school, though, I got an opportunity to work for basically the biggest law firm, what I thought to be the best law firm in, in Tampa, Florida, where I was going to school. And I jumped on that and because it's just great training ground. I got to try a lot of cases. I t- took a lot of jury trials to verdict and um, really got great training as a trial lawyer um, in communication and, and persuasion and, and, um, and kind of just connected with the basic truth in it all, which is you just got to be yourself, you know, and, uh, tell an authentic story and and what better way to do that if, if you're representing an injured person or somebody you know that insurance company big insurance company said no 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 i know you're an amputee but you don't you don't need a prosthetic limb i mean it just inspires me every day i get fired up every morning um to go to work and to to work for these folks and um you know and try my best to to get justice so makes a lot of sense how did how did you start? Uh, you mentioned that you specifically started focusing on the the world of limb loss, limb difference in and law together uh, about ten years ago. But you'd been you've been practicing for twenty two years, so you spent twelve years, more than a decade, um, sort of honing your chops in, in a variety of other areas. So, sort of, what was the transition point for you? Um, yeah, great question. And I think I what I meant to say there is like in the last ten years, I've been doing a lot of. Um, of uh, the insurance coverage cases more so, but I've been doing okay. I've been doing the personal injury, you know, representing amputees who have lost a limb in a personal injury type case or medical malpractice for almost my my entire career, almost twenty years. 
Um, but after I, you know, I, I took an unusual path to getting here. I, I started my own firm. I, I moved out to California in 2003 after practicing in Florida for six years. Started my own firm shortly thereafter with one case. It was a leg amputation case, a case a friend of mine I went to college with lost his leg in, due to compartment syndrome, which is a condition where the leg um, swells up. The compartments within the lower leg um, the, in the tibia, fibula area, fibula area swell up and, and um, kind, of, kind of choke out the, the tissue. He lost his leg, and I represented him, uh, and you know got a, a, a very a very nice um, recovery for him. And around that time, I caught a really fascinating case that took me on a on a trip, a ride of my life for about six seven years. It was a case that I ended up arguing in the U.S. Supreme Court, a case that uh, was featured on sixty Minutes, and and a case that kind of brought me uh, national recognition in terms of um, and international recognition, really. I mean, the case was reported all over the world. And it was also an amputation case, but a little different kind of an amputation case. I represented an immigration detainee who came here from El Salvador when he was 10 years old. His mom brought him over here. He got mixed up in drugs. His mom died. And he didn't have any parents. His dad, dad had died before he came over here from El Salvador. And uh, he was detained. And he had a lesion on the end of his penis. And for about 14 months, he was detained in state and federal custody. And the medical providers there, the lower level providers, were just begging to try to get him a biopsy because they thought he might have penile cancer, which is a real rare uh, disease, but it's extraordinarily deadly. And it's obviously in an extraordinarily sensitive area. Um, he, he ultimately was unsuccessful in getting a biopsy over 14 months, and it got so bad that his, I mean, his, his penis was about to explode, basically, and they let him out so they didn't have to pay for his care, and his, his penis was amputated a few days later, and then he died about a year later from penile cancer. And so I represented his family um, in this saga, um, two parallel lawsuits against the federal government and the state government to try to get them to change their policy for the provision of, of health care to, to immigration detainees. What we discovered in the course of that case was that um, the, the worst criminals in the world, murderers, convicted rapists, or being held in these supermax detention facilities were getting better care than immigration detainees. And immigration detainees have committed no crime. I know it's very popular to call them illegal, but they're not, they're not illegal in the sense they've committed a crime that's punishable by a penal statute, a criminal statute. They're illegal in the sense that they don't have the proper paperwork. They're undocumented and they don't have the authority to, to remain in the country. But the law is clear that if you're going to detain somebody and prevent them there, thereby from getting access to care, you got to give them just basic reasonable care, like, for example, a biopsy to rule out a life-threatening disease like cancer. So we had discovered that if he had been treated when he, was, when he first got in, um, had gotten the biopsy, he's, his life would have been saved. And the, the case went to a jury trial. We got a verdict. Um, and ultimately got one of the largest uh, recoveries, largest settlements in the United States history for a case of this type, got the policy change, and then also got to argue the case in the U.S. Supreme Court, which was sort of a, a wild experience. Sure. Wow. That, that's, that's incredible. I that's... know that wasn't the amputation story you guys were looking for. But... No. It... <laughs> or expected. But... 
it it's not, but I think it's it's fascinating how, you know, everything can kind of intertwine and, you know, obviously that's a different type of amputation, but still, you know, very relevant and it's fascinating how that kind of can change the trajectory of, of your entire career. Yeah, and it really did. It really did. Um and it's a case that uh, you know, I'm I'm certainly proud of the work that we did on it and uh I'm glad I had the the opportunity to participate in it as, as, you know, the lead trial counsel. So I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. No, no, please. You. Um, Yeah. Well, all I was, and, and now I just lost my train of thought, but, um, so I'll let you take it over, Dave, and I'll try to recover (laughs) what I was thinking. (laughs) That's fine. So you had, um, you have this, uh, remarkable experience in the U S Supreme court and uh, you're you're focused historically on on personal injury cases, particularly those involving amputation. And from there, you wind up in sort of this uh, very unique place you now sit in, uh, where you're involved in several litigations, if I'm not mistaken, um, involving large groups of amputees uh, who have been denied access to particular types of prosthetic devices in these class action litigations. And why don't you talk a little bit, Connell, about sort of how that came up even as an opportunity, and then maybe just before we go into the details, a quick explanation of what a class action lawsuit is. Sure. You know, I got into this, like I said, about 10 years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Stan Patterson from um, Prosthetic Orthotic Associates in Orlando had some issues, I think, with uh, reimbursement. And he found out about me through the grapevine, I guess. And uh, I came down to, to talk to him, to meet with him. I was living in California at the time. And, of course, if you know Stan, I mean, you know, he, he, he convinced me, uh, him and, him and a, another a friend of ours became friends, Jack Farley, who's a, who's a retired federal judge, from the DC area, he was there getting treatment. He's an amputee as well. And they, they convinced me on my business trip there to talk about reimbursement that Stan could make me a better leg. <laughs> so I actually, I actually became a patient of his, but then I started digging deep into kind of reimbursement issues and, and I wanted to figure out a way because I saw that insurance companies basically, in my view, were taking unreasonable and unfair positions and denying prosthetic limb benefits to their insureds, their insurance members. So I, 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 I just thought that was wrong on a, on a kind of real visceral human level. And, and then when I started digging into it, I figured out that, look, they were doing all these – and every insurance company is a little bit different, but they were doing all these different things. They had all these tricks to try to delay and deny claims. Now, before I get into the class action, I kind of want to – I think it's important for the audience to kind of get some basics about how insurance works. Um, the you know people think that uh, you know the insurance company will tell them okay I see your claim here whatever it may be and not necessarily specific to prosthetics but we'll use prosthetics as an, as an example you know an above the knee amputee submits a claim and they they want a you know a typical socket knee uh, they want a, a microprocessor knee and an ankle and the, and the prosthetic company comes back and says oh well we're not going to pay for the microprocessor limb it's experimental investigational that was the old line back in the day about 10 years ago now they have different reasons that they find to to deny it but essentially they they create reasons to in my view to deny claims and primarily because of the cost 
um, you know, the, the, the price of technology and prosthetics has skyrocketed in the last 15 years to 20 years, really with the advent of the microprocessor chip in, in, in lower limb prosthetics. It's been around in uppers for a long time, but as you all know, the upper limb population is much, uh, much lower in numbers than the lower limb population. But when Autobach rolled out the C-Leg in 1998, 1999, and then it became you know, pretty much standard issue within the next three to four years after that, the insurance, the insurance industry sort of took a huge step back because I remember my prosthetic limbs back before the sea leg came out were, I don't know, 13, 14,000 a year, jumped up to 50 immediately. And now it's over a hundred thousand retail. So, you know, because of that insurance company started looking, looking at the bottom line and said, Hey, we, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. But what most people don't realize is that, that an insurance plan is just basically a contract. Dave, you know this from law school and your practice. I mean, whenever you're going to look at a contractual claim, whenever there's a breach of contract issue in any case, what's the first thing you look at? The contract. The contract. The language of the contract. Exactly. Exactly. And so the contract in the insurance context is called the evidence of coverage or EOC for short. Sometimes different insurance companies refer to it as a summary plan description. So sometimes you'll find a carrier that just has a summary plan description, but oftentimes there's a summary plan description and then there's sort of a table that they put out that talks about the co-pays and the deductibles and what's covered and what's not in a real short form. But the evidence of coverage is the actual contract. And when you look at the evidence of coverage as it relates to prosthetics, it's usually with most carriers very, very general. And it just says, we pay for prosthetics. Um, and then they might have an exclusion section. So when you're reading any insurance policy, you look at the section that says what is covered. And it now a lot of them just say it in that, in that term. They'll have a section that's entitled what is covered because they've been put, pressure's been put on them to make it into sort of common sense terms that everyday folks can understand. So when you're reading a, 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 an insurance contract, this is really important for all anybody listening to this, anybody that has an issue with insurance, you always got to start with the evidence of coverage. You got to ask your carrier for it because it's sometimes available online right now, but you got to make sure you actually get the evidence of coverage. On the first page of the document, it, oftentimes it'll say evidence of coverage. But you want to look for the section that says what is covered. You want to look at that and see do they cover prosthetic limbs generally. Usually they'll say yes, it'll be a very general term. And then the next thing you got to do is look at the exclusion section. And that, all, and that sometimes says now what is not covered. That's literally the title. So they're trying to make it simpler. But you, you look at, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, the way I describe it is the, the what is covered section giveth and the exclusion or what is not covered section taketh away. So you got to look to make sure that there's no specific exclusion for, you know, some plans would, will write out a microprocessor technology, for example, although not many plans do. But that evidence of coverage is really general, usually, and that's that's the thing that governs the claim legally. Now, here's the other thing that's really important that these carriers will do. All insurance companies do this. They will then create a second document that's not part of the evidence of coverage, and they never give it to you. They never show it to you when you're applying for insurance. But sometimes it's called a coverage determination guideline. United Healthcare, for example, has a document that's called a, 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 a um, coverage determination guideline. They abbreviate that CDG and they have one on prosthetics and they'll say, well, they'll have all kinds of different rules and things uh, about what's covered and what's not that's not included in the EOC, the evidence of coverage, which is the contract. And other companies will just create like a medical policy, like Anthem, for example, has medical policy on microprocessor knees. 
Literally, if you go into Google and you and you Google Anthem microprocessor knee policy, first page of Google, first uh, first entry, it'll come up with a click. You click on it, and you actually get their policy, and you can read it. Same thing with most of the carriers; it'll be online somewhere. You can find it. It's not hard to find, but they don't give it to you. And and these policies, whether they call it a, a coverage determination guideline or whether they call it just a, a poli- medical policy, it creates further restrictions on what can be covered. So it gives their claims handling folks, their medical directors, guidance on what to do. So the, 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 the medical directors always rely on these policies. And they say, okay, well, the cl- this claim is going to be denied because of this policy or whatever. But the policy they're referring to is not the actual plan language. It's not the insurance policy. It's not the contract, the evidence of coverage that actually legally governs the claim. It's just that it's just the policy that they made up. I mean, they just, they literally make it up. I mean, they have base. They have some basis for it. They have medical folks that are involved in it, but it's not dispositive. In other words, just because they have a policy that says X isn't covered doesn't mean it's so. It doesn't mean that you can't challenge it and win in court. And so that's like one of the biggest takeaways that I want the audience to get is that, look, just because your insurance carrier comes back to you and says something's covered, it doesn't mean that you have to take that. And it doesn't mean that and, – and, you know, you have appellate rights in most plans, but you can appeal it to the next level. But I've, in my experience, claims are rarely overturned on appeal, although it happens from time to time. But you don't have to just stop there. I mean, you, you have in every insurance plan, you have legal rights to challenge um, – the ultimate coverage determination by the carrier. And it doesn't matter if they refer back to these policies. Now, there's some circumstances in which, hey, you, it's tough. You can't, you, you know, not every claim is, is a good claim. For example, if you have an insurance plan, the evidence of coverage that actually excludes microprocessor devices, you know, that's going to be a hard case to win if you want a microprocessor device because your plan specifically excludes it. And that's the contract language. So anyway, I, I know I just gave you guys a mouthful, and I can kind of go on to the class actions, but I don't know if you have any questions on any of that. I don't want to keep running my mouth. <laughs> it's a really important explanation and a, and, a, and a good one, Connell. And I just want to provide some additional context. You talked about, you know, back in the day with when, when uh, the first microprocessor knees came out. And very early um, after the creation of codes describing those devices went live, um, I was involved in a claim where Aetna d- denied denied a, our, our request to authorize delivery of one of those items. And I asked them, I said, I-, I need to understand what you're relying on in the contract to deny coverage. They sent me a fax. And the fax was about three pages long. It was a cover sheet. And then it was basically a page, page and a half. It's probably only two pages, actually, as I think about it now. Three paragraphs called uh, Policy Bulletin uh, 0578 and, or 578. And when I read it, it sort of had very peremptory reasons for why they considered this type of technology experimental. And I flipped back and I looked at the fax cover sheet and I realized that the fax cover sheet was my appeal, not the medical policy. And the reason I realized that was because the claims handler sending that to me said, per our cost containment unit, here's why we denied the claim. And I said, oh my God, they have, Aetna has a cost containment unit. And if you go and Google today, Aetna coverage policy bulletin 0578, um, so basically the same numbers and the, the same kind of thing. It's now about 18, 20 pages long. It has over 100 footnotes in it. 
but it all originated back in 2001 from this little um, this little bulletin that was a few paragraphs long yeah. from the cost containment unit, and it's it, it you know it really does highlight the delta between how we think about insurance on the one hand, where um, you know policy language governs, and then there's this whole separate thing this offshoot of that, that the insurance company itself creates, which actually governs how they rule on given claims. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It is sort of an internal guideline that, 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 that yeah, governs how they rule, but it's not, it's not set out by the government. It's not, it's not like it doesn't have the force of law. It's not blessed by some independent medical body. It's, you know, they came up with it and, and they're using it. And, and, you know, the other part, the interesting part about, insurance that's important to remember is that there's a duty of good faith and fair dealing that's implied in every insurance contract. And and what that means under the law is essentially as it relates to this issue is that insurance companies have a duty to look for reasons to provide coverage, to grant coverage, not to deny coverage. Now they can, it's okay for them to look at reasons to deny coverage, but they have an affirmative obligation to look for, for evidence and, and reasons to, 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 to grant coverage. So it's not just an arm's length tra- you know, contract. There's actually principles in the law that govern insurance contracts. They're not set forth directly in the, in the actual insurance contract language that really provides you know, legal obligations for them to take steps that they hardly ever take. You know, I have to say, as as the only non-lawyer on this podcast, that you know, first of all, the discussion is fascinating, and second of all, just kind of as a a lay amputee without the litigious background, it feels completely and totally overwhelming, and um, kind of highlights, I think, the vulnerability that people who are living with limb loss and limb difference feel when they're dealing with their insurance companies because so many people don't realize that they actually do have some power and that they are empowered to, to take control over many of these issues that they hear the words, we're sorry, your claims denied. So therefore you'll get this instead of, you know, the need that we know you really would benefit the most from. So many people don't know that they can elevate that and that they, that there are steps that are laid out for you to be able to proceed and to fight. Sometimes, you know, just looking at the fight, you know, the vast fight in front of you can feel overwhelming. I mean, I, I've been an amputee now for, you know, 15, 16 years now. Um, and I'm still fighting my insurance company. And, you know, I know how to do the appeals. I know how to get the language that, that I need written in my record. And yet I still, you know, am fighting every day. And I, I tell my friends and, and my listeners all know that I am far more disabled by my insurance company than I am by the fact that I don't have my foot and ankle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it can sometimes be a full-time job just to deal with an insurance claim. I mean, and they have these institutional processes set up to, Peggy, as you say, make it daunting, intimidating, overwhelming. Um, you know, I could tell, of course, war stories all day about it, but and I, I don't want to do that. But, you know, it's, it's, it, is, it is difficult. Um, 
and I, you know, there's reasons why they make it difficult. Can you imagine? Can you can you think of any? <laughs> <laughs> we we sure can. Yeah. And what I mean, before we go into the class action piece of this, I mean, one of the things when I started my career, Connell, I was actually I was working for the insurance companies and speaking to to people there, often executives at those companies. And what I've always been struck by then and now when I speak to medical directors who are to, you know, pretty high-ranking people in these organizations and they have a lot of authority, I've always been struck by the fact that the executives, at least um, verbally, are saying the kinds of things you would want to hear as a consumer. Um, there, there appears to be some recognition that providing, uh, providing these, uh, these benefits for a fee um, obligates the insurance company to certain uh, certain commitments. And yet, the further down these organizations you get, the more it feels like it really is just a game of deny the claim and see what happens next for them. Because if you know statistically that 90% of the people aren't going to appeal, you've just saved the insurance company money and you've increased its profitability. Is that Do you have similar similar um, conversations uh, and or observations about insurance companies from high to low or do you think it or do you think that reaction of mine is naive and um, and uh, inaccurate no I mean I think well well first of all I think every carrier insurance carrier is a little bit different they all do things a little a little differently some are frankly better than others some you know in the claims side of it, it seems like their practices are, are pretty bad. I mean, I, you know, and I'll use, I'll use an example. So Anthem is a good example of that. You know, I've had, I've handled about 10 to 15 cases against Anthem in the last 10 years, individual cases, not class actions. I have a class action pending against them. We'll get into a little bit, but, um, but I've done a lot of individual cases against Anthem and a lot of cases in which I thought I just couldn't understand what they were doing on the, on the claims level. And however, once you, identify it and then you file suit their people are reasonable their lawyers are reasonable their in-house counsel are reasonable they, they they approach it reasonably to try to resolve it you know when they can and they recognize um you know in every case so far i've won them all and they've all been settled they haven't gone to trial any of these individual anthem cases but they step up to the plate and they try to do what's right i feel like i mean they they when they can they'll approve the the claim after it's, of course it's after a lawsuit's filed so you don't want to give them too much credit but when the when the higher level decision makers look at it a lot of times I've found at least with Anthem they you know they they realize they got it wrong and they try to make it right other carriers Blue Shield is an example they don't they don't do it that way you know they litigate it tooth and nail they don't in my view take the honorable position where they'll you know. I mean, it's, I've always viewed it as, look, you know, this is kind of like the stuff you learn in kindergarten. I mean, if you you knock a little kid over in kindergarten to the dirt and he starts crying, I mean, you, you know, you reach your hand down and you say, I'm sorry, let me pick you up. Let me make it right. And there's some companies that do that. And there's some honorable companies. And then there's some that are, you got you to bring them kicking and screaming to the table. Um, but, you know, in terms of, so what happens at a lower level? Um I can, if you want, I can kind of dovetail into one of the cases and sort of describe it a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. So, the uh, let's take the United Healthcare uh, class action. That's the one that's been getting quite a bit of um, press in the media lately. But 
to, to start with a question you had, Dave, earlier, let me kind of define what that means, a class action. So a class action is merely a lawsuit um, where, where a person or a couple people, in this case we have two plaintiffs, bring a, a, a case, a lawsuit against a company, not just for, for them, but for everyone similarly situated, and in this case, it's a national class action, not just like a, a local California class action. The, the United class is a class on, be, um, on behalf of every single amputee across the country that has had a, um, a private, you know, employee-based plan. It's an ERISA plan. A, a you know, if you're if you're insured through your work and you've had a claim that's been denied, say in the last five years, you're probably going to be part of this class. And so the the theory is you you you, you um, get a couple plaintiffs where something's happened to them that's also happened uniformly across the country to everyone else, and if that's the case, if you can show to the court's satisfaction that look what happened to these two named plaintiffs is happening to everyone else across the country in the same way, um, you can get what's called a class certified. So anybody can file a class action lawsuit. The key to a class action lawsuit in terms of getting um, injunctive class-wide relief across the country is to get the class certified. And so the way that works is you file a motion for class certification. You attach all the evidence that you have of, of these common practices or a policy that's, a, that's, that's applied uniformly across the country. And then the judge looks at it and decides whether he thinks the requirements for a class action have been met. That, you know, in, and I'm really sort of simplifying this, but basically that what happened to the plaintiffs is happening to everyone else in the same fashion. Um, and so in this United case, what we found was that there were these two main practices that United has been engaging in for a long time. Um, and it's one of those practices is specific to the plan language in United. United has plan language that says the following, essentially. If if more than one prosthetic device can meet the member's functional needs, coverage is only available for the device that meets the minimum specification for those needs. Or a similar plan language, plan language the United Plan say something very similar. It says if more than one prosthetic device can meet an amputee's functional needs, only the most cost-effective device will be covered. So we looked at that. And what we what we saw was that United just seems to be just sending out these blanket denials, with no analysis that just say, no, this is denied because it's not the most basic device. They sort of paraphrased their plan language and boiled it down to saying that, look, you're only entitled to the most basic device. And so we thought that was strange. We thought it was unusual. And we thought that, you know, they're probably not really doing any analysis with this because the the plan language presupposes that there's some type of comparative analysis being done by the by the medical directors, the claims handlers, and 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 I think that's pretty clear with that first clause of that language. It says if more than one prosthetic device can meet functional needs, well, so you you've got the one device that the treating prosthetist thinks meets needs because that's that's what they prescribed. So if you're gonna if you if you're gonna take the position that there's another one, another device or devices that will meet needs, you have to at least identify what those devices are, right? And then compare them. Sure. So, yep. so what we found out through depositions in the case was that United was not doing this analysis. They were not identifying alternative devices when they were denying the claims, and and we certainly were not communicating that to the to the members. So again, it would just it would just say. 
your claim is denied, it's not the most basic. Basically, guess again. Submit another. You're free to submit another claim. So ba- it, it put the prosthetist and the member, the insurer, the amputee, in a position where they just basically have to keep guessing as to what United might cover. The other practice, the second practice that we identified is, is that when they have a claim, and I'll use a hypothetical example that'll make sense probably to the audience, say there's a uh, an AKA above knee amputee uh, prosthetic claim, and um, they've requested a standard socket, pretty standard foot, but they want, say, the genium knee unit, and United decides they're not going to pay for the genium. But I mean, according to their own medical directors, their own policies, they pay for the they pay for the socket, they pay for the ankle, the foot, the pylon, and all that. Maybe they'd pay for ten out of fifteen L codes in the claim. What they did was they would never tell the insured or the provider that hey, these ten L codes, you know, for the socket and for the ankle and foot, these are approved. You can you can get these. You just got to figure out a different need. They would never they would they they don't tell the the, the members that. So they just sent out this sort of real generic. Again, denial that basically just says, look, we've looked at this. The leg you've requested is not the most basic. Try again. So, And we also discovered that this was basically a class-wide practice. In other words, the United Medical Directors were doing this uniformly across the country. So we, we got all this evidence together. We filed our motion for class certification. The judge agreed with us. We won it. Um, the judge certified the class. We have trial coming up in um, May 28th. And so we're proceeding forward toward trial. Um, I just got out of a seven hour deposition today in the case, um, and came straight uh, to this, uh, podcast, but, uh, so we'll see what the court does. The court has not ruled on the merits of the case. In other words, the court has not said whether these two practices are unlawful or not, um, whether they violate the federal codes, um, under ERISA, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, it's just the name of the statute that governs these types of claims because they're through a, 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 um, a, an employer. And an employer benefit plans are part of this this remedial scheme called ERISA, this um, um, health ins- this, this kind of scheme that that addresses federal um, benefit plans. So the judge has got to decide whether these practices violate ERISA, and um, so there we, there we are with that case. I mean, we've got it teed up. We're going to trial in three weeks, and you know we're ready to go. And hopefully, the judge does the right thing on it. But we should know in the next month or so what's going to happen. Um, and then in terms of what we're asking for, I mean, we're asking for United to change their policy, their practices, to, to, to start identifying alternative devices, letting, letting the prosthetist and the amputee know, hey, we're not going to pay for this L code, but we'll pay for this L code. Or they're not going to pay for this device, but we'll pay for this device. And to the extent that they're denying codes that they admit are covered, we're going to ask them to start identifying. Well, these are the codes, 10 codes that are covered. You can get these. And and then, you know, they're not, you know, these codes aren't covered. So maybe let's talk about this further, get something else, or at least, you know, take the money for these codes that we will pay for. And you can pay the difference if you want to get the genium instead of the C-leg or whatever it may be. So we're trying to get them to change their policy. But significantly, this is important, you know, for the audience as well. We're going to ask that they reprocess all claims that have been denied over the past number of years. So if you've, if you've, if you're a United, if you've been a United insured in the past four or five, six years, you know, you need to be on the, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll certainly get notice. We'll mail out notice, but don't take those. Don't, you know, a lot of people get class action notices all the time in the mail and you get like a two, two cent coupon or something for, for, uh, you know, because some product wasn't done properly, but this, this is real relief because 
you know, these devices, as everybody knows, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 bucks. And if you've had one denied in the past, you may have the chance to get it, you know, you will have the chance to get it reprocessed if we win or if we reach a settlement. And um, you could potentially get, you know, get the leg um, or, the, or the arm that was been denied, get it approved. Um, so there's an opportunity to really hopefully get a lot of amputees across the country, you know, another shot at the apple uh, if they were another bite at the apple if they were sort of wrongfully denied in the first place. The case is not going to decide individual medical necessity decisions, though. So we're not asking the court. The court doesn't have the power to go back and say, well, you know, Susie's claim in North Dakota for her eye limb ultra was wrongfully denied, and she gets that particular device. It's just, look, if you've, if you've been subject to these wrongful practices, you know, you get to reprocess the claims. That That is... Awesome. And just for our listeners, this is something that AMPT is going to stay on top of and we'll we'll put out information in our newsletter um, if this does come to fruition. And we'll also blast it out on, on through our social network. So we're on top of it. Yeah. And Connell, is this the only class action you're involved in currently? No, there's a couple other ones. Um, the other big one, the other big national class is Anthem. And we are challenging two of their written policies. They've changed one of them already, but we challenged their sea leg policy. I, should, I shouldn't you keep using auto, uh, an Autobach product, right, Dave? But their microprocessor, their micro. It's fine. Just use the pro- use products. We're not. We're not. No. Go ahead. But so they have a microprocessor knee policy and a microprocessor ankle policy. What we've discovered was, first of all, let me take the ankle one. It's the easiest. I mean, they've taken the position that the ankle, microprocessor ankle, similar to the proprio foot, for example, is experimental investigational. In other words, it's not the benefits, the medical benefits of it, they allege, have not been proven sufficiently. And so they just denied on a class-wide basis. That's why it's easy to get that case certified because – they apply this policy to everybody, and they say, "Look, you just, you just, you're not entitled to get a, an ankle." We think that's wrong. We think that, although the microprocessor ankle is not for every amputee, um, that there are certain amputees that would greatly benefit from it, and it certainly has a lot of benefits over the alternative for you know a certain patient population, and it should not be excluded on a class-wide basis across the board. So we've challenged that policy. We are in um, settlement negotiations about it. I can't really discuss too much about that. It wouldn't be appropriate or fair. But, I mean, Anthem is open to the idea of, of changing it. Like, like I said before, they seem to be one of the most, uh, you know, after the fact, retrospectively, when they look back at it, the most, one of the most fair companies. I mean, they tend to, they tend to try to make it right. And <clears throat> the other policy is the microprocessor knee policy. And they had this really outdated old policy that I think – Ultimately, I, I think I traced it back to the year 2000 when, when the VA established their first microprocessor knee policy, and it's long since been deemed you know, obsolete, but it had a bunch of provisions in it that required an amputee to show that they could walk faster in a, in a uh, microprocessor knee compared to the alternative, or they had to walk certain long distances, and really kind of focus a lot on the speed of the walking, which 
anybody that knows anything about a microprocessor knee knows that it's not it's nothing to do with walking fast. I mean, you want a microprocessor knee because it's safer. It's 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 more stable. Um, and anybody that's an above knee amputee that's transitioned like I have about 15 years ago from a just a standard mechanical hydraulic unit to a microprocessor knee knows that. I mean, I remember I, I might have stumbled and fallen two, three times a month before getting a microprocessor knee, and I've stumbled and fallen maybe two or three times in the last 15 years. I mean, the stumble recovery part of the device is fantastic, and it's just a, a really great everyday walking device um, that really isn't related to how fast you walk. It's not an athletic leg, it doesn't, and it shouldn't really matter that you, you know, whether or not you walk long distances or not. So they've actually changed, as I understand it, they've changed that policy, agreed to change it. Um, but again, we're <coughs> in settlement discussions with them about that right now, and uh, and we'll see. So <coughs> it would also require, if we come to a settlement with that case, <coughs> it would require a reprocessing of claims of anyone that's been denied a microprocessor knee or ankle through Anthem in the last, say, five, six years. It's really good. It's really good to know. And Connell, I mean, if people wanted to connect with you, ask you questions about um, a specific case that they have, or if they were um, interested in understanding more about the class actions uh, themselves, uh, what what should they be doing? <clears throat> well, um, you can call. I'm pretty easy to find on the internet, and you can call my office. Um, my I got two websites, and one of them is easy to remember is amputeelawyer.com. Um, ConnellDoyleLaw.com. My number is 310-385-0567. That's my um, office number. If anybody that calls in that wants to talk should just re reference AMPT. Other thing I want to quickly mention is um, that I don't charge for any, any money for my services in terms of consulting, reviewing a case. Um, it, so, you know, typically the way we work is if there is a lawsuit, you know, we would work on a contingency fee basis or we would get paid by the insurance company for our fees at the end of the case. So no amputee will, um, will ever get a, a bill from me to call me and ask me for help, for guidance. Can't help every single person, you know. I mean, every every case is a little different, but I'll, you know, do my best. And um, I'm in court a lot. I'm in trial a lot. So, I, you know, I don't get back, um, I, you know, I don't get back to you the same day all the time, but I do my best to have me or my staff um, call you back immediately. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and get some guidance. Uh, so, you know, we're always available. The other thing that we do is we work with prosthetists a lot. So, you know, I always tell prosthetists that, Hey, if you have any, uh, any patients where there's been a denial and you haven't, you know, struggling getting coverage for a device you think should be covered, you know, call me. And I've been doing this with prosthetists. I started doing it with, with Stan about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And I've yet in 10 or 12 years sent a bill to a prosthetist ever for any advice I've ever given them. So I, I just do it with the idea that, you know, it's um, I'm giving back to the community. And if it turns out to be a case where we litigate and, you know, um, I'll take a contingency fee on that. I mean, the vast majority of these cases don't turn out to be litigated cases, you know, so it's primarily me, me giving out some free advice, which is fine. You, you know, it's all part of the process of, of giving back to the community. That's great, Connell. And that's a, it's a, it, it's interesting. We won't get into it here, but to watch um, how the, the legal model has evolved, what, you know, how, how do firms in particular and individuals in law, um, how do they 
build loyalty and uh, what types of models do they implement now versus the, the old days? Uh, two very different things. And one of the reasons I got out of law was because I really didn't like a lot of those models. And if I was going back in today, it would certainly be, it would certainly, I'd be looking at some of these alternative arrangements. Uh, but the, the fact that you're, you know, talking to people um, a lot and simply uh, doing the work and um, evaluating and building relationships that way is a, is a really smart and uh, I think humane way to approach it. Well, and Peggy, in what, go ahead, oh, just one other real quick thing. My marketing uh, folks would kill me, but I, I really am not a big social media fan. I've never really been big into it, but I've, I've um, t- to reconnect with the community a little bit and to provide advice. We have started some some stuff, and I think it's um, you know, an amp- we have an amputee lawyer, I believe. Um, uh, well, Facebook page um, as well as I think a LinkedIn and uh, uh, maybe a Twitter as well. Although we, you know, we, we just sort of got that started. And, but but I, I think I might have five followers or something. So maybe you could follow me, Dave, and I won't feel like such a loser if I can get if I can maybe I can get to double digits. You need, I'll, I'll you help. Need, we'll you help need, push you, you need, out. Yeah, you need yeah. Peggy's help more than mine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But I got to start posting more stuff. But we just got that going recently. But anyway, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. Uh, but uh, uh, no, go ahead. We'll, we'll include links to all of that in the, the show notes and we'll also, Dave, let's make sure we include all of that information in our newsletter this week. Absolutely. Not a problem. Um, and we'll that. share it. We have a, a private network away from social media where amputees can connect uh, through an app, and we'll, um, if you want to join our network, it is ampedlife.com. A little plug there, and then um, we'll definitely push out this resource as well. I think it's, you know, I spoke earlier about how it's just sometimes it can feel overwhelming, and you know, you lose a limb, and then you're kind of thrown into this whole sea of of paperwork, and it feels like the insurance companies just keep putting up barriers of red tape to keep you from achieving your goal and it's it's really empowering and reassuring at the same time to know that there are people who who are on our side and you've you've you live this journey with us and you're taking your experience and your expertise not only to help yourself but to help the whole community at you know globally really and you know just i i really thank you for that i find it very reassuring i know that the community um once we get the word out about you, we'll find it very, very reassuring as well. Well, thank you very much. It's, you know, it's, um, it's my, like I said, it's, it's my pleasure. It's my passion to do this stuff. I don't feel like it's work. So. Fantastic. Well, Connell, listen, we thank you for, at the end of what has been a very long day for you, but I'm glad you were in a seven hour deposition about this issue before talking to us. Cause you came in primed and ready to go. If, perhaps a little tired, but um, we really exactly. appreciate you, you tacking on an hour at the end of your very long day on the West Coast to have a conversation with us. So thank you. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Enjoyed chatting with you. And uh, I, I can't believe I'm not a member of AMP Life already. I got to get on that. There you go. <laughs> and and if there's anything that the Amped Army can can do to, to help with these issues, you know, please let us know. So we have some some really strong people that are very good at rallying when need be. We just need direction. Yep. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there's going to be a time and a place for that coming up. So we'll let you know. Sounds good. All right. 
Well, Peggy, great talking to you as always. And great we'll talking catch up to again you next too. week. All Sounds right. good. Bye. Take care. Bye now.